This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that we would be starting a series. And so tonight is the first night in a five-part series. And we're going to look at what are considered to be the five preconditions for insight. What conditions do we need to establish insight? Many people, when they come to meditation, think, ah, just sitting and being quiet, easy as pie. But, you know, what's the big deal? Why is this something that I need classes for? Why is it something that I need instruction for? But I think after we sit a few times, we realize, wow, the mind is a lot more unruly than we thought it was. We thought, sit, watch the breath, no big deal. But we sit down, okay, we got that part done. Watch the breath. How many breaths were you able to observe? And how frequently was the mind just pulled off into thoughts? Thoughts of things that we did, things that we regret, things that we fear, worry about the future, analysis about what's happening, or spinning out in just a, a general state of, of uncertainty or anxiety, or spiraling down in kind of a dull state of mind. Sometimes the mind is so restless it will pick up anything. Movies that we saw years ago. Fragments of conversations that piece together make no sense whatsoever. In fact, much of what we think is not even very interesting to ourselves. <laughs> Many people describe their own wandering minds as being a kind of torture, self-torture, deeply troubling. It's an unfortunate pattern that sabotages our potential to experience deep peace and develop a mind that is clear and aware. In this series, I'm going to be working with a discourse from the Buddha that's called the Magiya Sutta. And it ends with a verse that says, trivial thoughts, subtle thoughts, mental jerkings that follow one along. Not understanding these mental thoughts, one runs back and forth with wandering mind. But having known these mental thoughts, the ardent and mindful one restrains them. An awakened one has entirely abandoned them, these mental jerkings that follow one along. Do you ever feel like you're being followed by mental jerkings? <laughs> Pushed and pulled and you set them aside and then they leap up again. This discourse intrigues me because it occurred at a time when the Buddha was traveling with one monk named Venerable Magia. And Magia was serving as an attendant to the Buddha. And they had gone, or Venerable Magia had gone into the village for alms one day and had received his alms. And as he was walking back, he walked back along the river. And as he was strolling back along the river, he found this beautiful spot in a mango grove 
that was right along this bank of the river that had shade and cool, fresh water. And he thought, ah, if I could just practice in this lovely mango grove, in this perfect place, then I will succeed in my practice. My mind will be calm. I will attain insight and be awakened. And so he had this thought that he found the perfect conditions. There was no other noise going on, no other meetings happening in patios and rooms next door, no sirens going by. They weren't, Mango Grove was not right next to a hospital. (laughs) And so he found this perfect place and he thought, if only I could practice there, then my practice will succeed. So he went to the Buddha and he asked for permission to go off into seclusion and to practice alone in this lovely spot that he found by the river. And the Buddha said, not a good time. Better to stay for a while. Wait till some other monks come and wait a little while. But Venerable Magia asked again. And the second time the Buddha said, not such a good time. Better to wait. And a third time, Magia asked for permission to go to this manga grove and to strive. And he said, you Buddha, you have already accomplished your aim. But I have not accomplished my aim. There is more I must do. And so the, so Venerable Magia uh, received the permission and the Buddha said, okay already, if you want to go, do what you think you must. And so he went off. And he went to practice in this mango grove. And he sat down with pretty good intentions, actually. But it was no, it was, it was a very short time before he realized that his mind was absolutely obsessed with thoughts of sensual desire, malevolent thoughts, and cruel thoughts. Basically, he was absolutely preoccupied with an agitated mind. And so he goes running back to the Buddha and to ask for advice. And interestingly, what the Buddha taught was that there are five conditions that make it possible for one to develop their meditation and seclusion. That we have to create the conditions within a baseline of the conditions within our mind before we go off alone to practice in that kind of an environment. These five conditions include good friendship, virtue and restraint, engaging in talk on the Dhamma, wise effort and wisdom. They develop progressively and they support one another in this process. I think this discourse encourages us to be somewhat realistic and matter-of-fact, to not have such arrogance and conceit that we think we can do anything. Maybe we're successful in one area of our lives, and we think, oh, meditation, I can do that too. Maybe we can, if we have the conditions. But sometimes people want something so bad that they feel that it must happen immediately. And if it isn't happening, they can force it to happen through their will, their willpower, the strength of their determination. And determination is an important factor. 
There is effort that's needed, forbearance, endurance, a willingness to put forth the best of our efforts and to make a complete commitment. You know, if we sit down to observe the mind, we might need to see what's there and to deal with it, whatever it is that we find, even if it's not what we wanted. If we decide we're going to sit at home for 30 minutes, eh, just because we get restless after 20 minutes doesn't mean we should get up. Maybe we should still stay there for those extra 10 minutes and be mindful of restlessness. See what that is. See how we can work with it and possibly free the mind from it. So there's tremendous value for diligence in this practice. But we also need to be realistic. Many years ago, I was practicing meditation in India, and I was sitting at a retreat in Bodh Gaya. The village of Bodh Gaya grew up around the place where the Buddha was enlightened under the Bodhi tree. And Christopher Titmus, one of my teachers, leads an annual retreat there. And on this retreat, one young man decided that he was going to practice very diligently because he heard Christopher say that when he was a monk, when Christopher was a monk back in the late 60s and early 70s, he had practiced a form of meditation where they make strong resolves and do um, rather difficult practices. And one of them was to sit continuously without laying down for a few weeks. So he would undertake that commitment to not lay down. So if he, when he wanted to sleep, he just leaned against a tree, sitting. And so obviously you don't sleep very much, and then you wake up and you, you continue the meditation. So he might doze, he might sleep a bit, but it's a kind of austerity practice. It's not one that I teach or recommend, but I'm just saying that in that context, Christopher was practicing with some pretty serious monastics and meditation masters in Thailand, And this was something that was within his ability to do, and it was not so very difficult for him. His practice was well-developed, and he had the conditions. And so he extended them into these more, one could call them austerity sorts of practices. But it was gradual, and so it developed in a way that was really not very difficult. But this young man, who was a student on the retreat, decided, well, if he could do it, I can do it too. And so he decided to make a resolve that very day that he would not lay down. And he would just sit day and night, day and night, through the rest of the retreat. Well, it was really quite a ridiculous vow because he had not even overcome the basic hindrances of desire and aversion, restlessness and sleepiness. And when one usually makes these kinds of, it does, enters into the advanced practices, one has already set aside all the coarse hindrances. And the mind is already very pure and can easily sit because it has developed deep calm and the skills to work with agitation when it arises. But he immediately became rather unbalanced. (laughs) Well, not immediately, but fairly quickly because of the intensity of the pressure that he put on himself. And I remembered this young man because although it's an extreme story, there are plenty of times in milder ways that we put undue pressure upon ourselves to do something that we haven't created the conditions to support, that we just expect to succeed 
because we've heard somebody else or because the conditions require it. But we haven't allowed ourselves to mature yet, to, to gradually create those conditions. There's no need to think we can do something or we should be able to do something just because we want the result. Overconfidence is not the same as conviction. It may be a kind of delusion or misperception or conceit and arrogance. When we want to accomplish something or undertake a practice, we can consider and reflect Practically, if we've trained our minds sufficiently to create the conditions that will support that endeavor, do we have the skills? Do we have the resources? Do we have the energy to do what it is we want to do in the time period that we've set? Now, for the most part, I encourage meditators to not judge their practice on any kind of timeline because everybody's practice is never quite as quick as they would like. I mean, some of you, I mean, I'm sure those of you who came to the the beginning meditation, the introduction, probably didn't think you were going to walk out of here enlightened. I don't know, maybe. But hopefully you know that this is a slower process. Possibly. Maybe it'll happen like that. Who knows? Actually, enlightenment doesn't require a kind of timeline. But there's no need to put pressure, time pressure, on the development of our mindfulness and our practice. What really matters is the integrity with which we meet each moment and the integrity with which we cultivate the conditions for further calmness and further insight. So tonight I want to primarily look at this first condition of the cultivation of good friends, good companions, and good associates in the holy life. In the coming weeks, we'll focus on each of the next four factors that support insight. So with good friendships, we reflect for a moment on who we associate with, because we know that who we associate with influences how we feel, our mood, our thoughts, what we do, how we spend our time, what, how we act, how we speak. The quality of everything that we experience might be influenced in, to some extent by the people that we hang out with. I think every parent is very sensitive to this and knows the effects of friends on their children. Sometimes a good, there's a good friend that really has a positive influence. And sometimes it's a friend that you don't want your kids hanging out with. I think perhaps the AA group is very aware of the power of good friendship and uses that meeting to support association with others who are committed to sobriety. We need good friends to help ourselves, to help ourselves get on the path, to stay on the path, whether that's a path of awakening or a path of sobriety. We are simply influenced by the people we spend time with. When we want to cultivate a certain ability, one of the first steps we do is to find others who have that ability. And so we might join a club We might take a class, we might meet a teacher, 
We might have a consultation with somebody. We might hang out with other friends who share that interest or have those skills. In the Buddha Dhamma, though, the term good friend means particularly those friends, those people or teachers, those communities that support our progress on the Noble Eightfold Path. This Noble Eightfold Path includes the development of virtue, the development of the mind, concentration and mindfulness, and the development of wisdom. The friends who support our realization and sustain our inquiry into life, that help us maintain a commitment to development and to truth, are our good friends. I spent a number of years in India with a teacher named Punjaji, and he was a great friend to so many disciples. And he helped people in a variety of ways, not only as an extraordinarily wise guru, a teacher, but he also helped in practical ways. He would invite people into his home. He, he took me in very much like a granddaughter. And we served many people food, lunches. He taught free without any um, expectation of fees. And when we were sick, as we often got being in India and being in a place that had little uh, refined, refi- I mean, the water was terrible. <laughs> it was just terrible. And when the rains came, there was typhoid, and typhoid is not fun. I recommend. Um, <laughs> cholera was in the area. It was, uh, we got sick. But he tried to take care of us. It was quite extraordinary to see just the human care that he gave perfect strangers who were just travelers traveling through and had heard of him and had come to um, receive his teachings, fell ill, and then he, he cared for them. I can remember being very, very sick and him making up some special little porridge that was some Ayurvedic thing made out of some grains that were supposed to help me. I don't think they did anything, but it was really nice that he, that he did that. <laughs> Tried to serve me with a spoon, you know, like you would serve a child. So in material ways, he was a good friend, but he was also a spiritual guide, a guru, so much more than just a, a friend that helps with material needs. He gave the Dhamma, And that's the strongest and the most powerful gift one can give, is the teachings of freedom, the teachings of liberation. He used to tell a story about a lion and a donkey. I haven't told this story in a long time, but you might, some of you might remember it. He liked this story a lot. He told it often. (laughs) I I must have heard it more than a hundred times, and that is not exaggerating. So there was a hunter had shot a lion by the riverbank. And when he came to collect the carcass, there was a little baby cub, a lion cub. And he had no use for the cub, so he just dragged the carcass of the mother lioness away and left the cub by the riverbank. And a short time later, the um, washerman came to the river with his team of donkeys, and the donkeys were carrying the laundry load. And the, um, the washerman saw this little baby, cute as can be, 
little lion cub. And I didn't want to just leave it by the, the river because clearly he could see the blood and he could the drag marks and knew that um, I could assess what had happened. And so this washerman brought the cub home with him and raised the cub right along with the team of his donkeys, with his little, with his group of donkeys. And as the cub grew up, it played with the donkeys, it ate with the donkeys, it grazed grass right along with the donkeys. And when it grew stronger, it started to help carry the laundry to and from the river, just along with all the other donkeys. And so time went by and the, the, the lion cub grew to a mature lion. He would go back and forth with the, with the washerman to, to wash the clothes, let them dry by the riverbank, and then carry them, the clean clothes, back into the village. And one day there was another lion that was hunting along the riverbank. And he saw a team of donkeys, and so he approached, because donkeys are food for the lions. And he was going to pounce on one of the donkeys, and he saw... What's this lion grazing grass with the donkeys? And he was quite perplexed. In fact, he was quite shocked. And so he did not know what was, what was going on, and he wanted to find out. And so instead of going for one of the donkeys, he went for this lion to catch the lion and to say, What are you doing grazing grass with the donkeys? So the, the whole herd of all the donkeys and this little lion went running away when they saw this lion coming at them. And so, but the big lion caught the little lion and said, what are you doing? And he was pleading, pleading, let me go, please, let me go, let me go back to my herd. And he said, what do you mean your herd? You're, you're not a donkey. I am a donkey. Don't confuse me. Don't confuse me. Anyway, so yeah, this, and so finally the lion dragged the young lion over to the river and forced his head over the water so that he could see the, the reflection of their two faces and realized that they were the same realized that he was indeed a lion. And so he roared his lion's roar and, got, and, and in that moment saw his true nature, one could say, or at least saw his potential. And although this story could have some vegetarian squeamish, <laughs> they didn't go killing those same donkeys, of course. But the idea here is a very interesting one to me because it describes the way that sometimes we need somebody to show us what we're capable of, what our potential is, to dis help discover an inner resource or an inner possibility that we may not have seen for ourselves. And the Buddha was that kind of a teacher for people. And his teachings and all those who practice this way help to bring these teachings alive so that when we hear of awakening, when we hear of the possibility to free the mind from suffering, we recognize within us, oh, that is a possibility. Maybe I can also learn to calm my mind and experience insight for myself. We can each develop the virtue, the mental development, and the wisdom that describes this path. Good friendship occurs in lots of different ways. When I was practicing in Thailand, I stayed at a, 
at a monastery um, where Ajahn Damodoro was the, the abbot or primary leader of the monastery, but he was quite elderly when I, at the time I was there and wasn't giving very many active teachings. And so I was given, uh, you know, an area where I could stay. It was a room that a lot of women were also staying in. And um, once a day, a nun, nobody, uh, none of the women at this monastery spoke English. So once a day, a nun who didn't speak English would come to my room and practice with me, which I thought was interesting. Nobody told me this was going to happen. She just came to my room, and through gestures and sign language, it was very clear that I was supposed to sit with her. And so we just sat together for one hour, and she gestured a few things. I'm not sure, I don't remember what it all was, but she was trying to give me meditation instructions through a few English words and a lot of gestures. And so we just sat for one hour together. And then she left. And then it, she appeared the next day, and this time through we, we did walking meditation for an hour together. And then she left. And then she came back the next day. And like this, we went through the month that I spent at this monastery just practicing together. And it was extraordinary, actually. I was amazed at how much I could learn and how inspiring it was to have that kind of um, dedication where somebody who didn't know me, didn't even speak my language, still came and offered whatever degree of teachings and her, the fullness of her presence to me. It was, it was it was profound. Sometimes a good friend, though, will be the one who will be able to correct us. Maybe we have an assumption that is, is really not accurate. Or maybe we have a view that is really quite damaging to ourselves or to others. And simply through their perspective on us, and their kindness towards us. They can correct us, and we might even hear what they say. Sometimes the kindness of people is unexpected and can even be disarming. When I was traveling in Asia for some years, I had grown, I didn't even realize the degree to which I had grown defensive when I traveled. I kind of armored a little bit. And it was almost like there was something hardening because I always had to be on guard, one could say. And in my travels, I ended up going for a short visit, just a few weeks. It was not a long time. On a stopover between places in South Korea. I was on, on a Korean air flight and they offered a free stop. You can take a free stopover through Seoul. So I thought, okay, great, I'll spend, I don't remember, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it was, just traveling around and visit some of the monasteries that I had heard about. And which I did, I was, I mean, I was traveling alone, so I took the buses and the boats and the trains. And you know, Did I take a train? No, I didn't take a train that trip. It was mostly buses and a boat. And traveled around South Korea and visited many temples and many monasteries. But what struck me the most about that time in South Korea was how this armor that I had built up 
started to just melt away. And it melted away because of the extraordinary um, generosity that was shown me, the kindness that was shown me by people who did not know me. And I did not know them. It became a normal thing that I would try to be finding the bus stop. And where in all the places that I was, there was there were ever all the signs were in Korean. So I had to open my travel book and compare all the little Korean uh, symbols to what the English was to try to figure out where the bus stop was, where the temple sign was, where the everything was well signed. It was just in Korean, so it didn't help me. But. I could compare, if I compared the symbols, I could compare them to figure out what was a hotel, what was a, what was, what was what. So I'd be opening, and it was, a, it was a slow process, of course, because I had maps and I had books, and, and so inevitably I'd be struggling along, and before I had struggled for very long, somebody would come up, often school children in their little, in their uniforms, to practice their English, but mostly what they were doing was asking, how can I help? And so they'd say, where are you from? What do you want? What, where are you going? How can I help? And so they would then find the right bus for me, take me to where I needed to be, and at time and again, they stopped whatever it was they were doing and waited with me until the right bus came, put me on the bus, told the bus driver where I wanted to go, and, and then the bus driver told me when to get off. It was extraordinary. And adults did this also, but I had an awful lot of interactions with school children <laughs> as well around this. But it was so delightful. I mean, it was so delightful. We rarely here take the time when we to help a, somebody who's a stranger. And then what shocked me the most was going into restaurants. Because, okay, I go into restaurants and I, of course, couldn't read the menu. And so I go up and I point to things and describe what I wanted. So, because, so I'd point to things, and, and it, it worked out. I, I ate. And so I'd be sitting there with whatever my noodle soup was or my kimchi, which was always too hot, by the way, <laughs> and, and in, in enjoying my meal. And time and again, I'd ask for the bill. And the, the waitress would tell me through gesture or English, depending on, on what um, his or her language was, that, that somebody had already paid for me. Somebody else in the restaurant had paid my meal and then they, when they paid theirs and they were long gone. They weren't even there to thank. And I had not had any interaction with them. Isn't that amazing? I mean, these acts of generosity were very, very touching to me. One might call them random acts of generosity. It was explained to me later that the, and I don't know if this happens to travelers from any place or if it was the reason, but somebody, another Korean man told me when I, I hung out a couple of days with, a, with another Korean traveler who was also traveling alone and we met on some bus or some boat or something and we spent a couple of days visiting temples together and he explained a number of things to me. His view was that that was happening. It didn't ever happen when we ate in the same restaurant together, but it happened partly because I was a woman alone and so it's customary for an older man to look out for a younger woman, but primarily because I was American and there was a deep gratitude to America for the port them, that America had given to South Korea. 
That was his explanation for it. But I experienced it as pure generosity. So there are many things where we interact with people that make a kind of difference in our practice. I'd like to reflect for a minute on your personal friends. Maybe some teachers that you've had. Who has made a difference in your life? Maybe there's a good friend who's somebody who you've never actually met, but they've inspired you. Maybe we could say they're a friend to the world, perhaps like His Holiness the Dalai Lama, or an inspiring poet, or the Buddha. To the extent that somebody helps us find a path to freedom, helps us stay true to what we know to be true. I think we can call them a good friend. So who do you count as your good friends? Think about their qualities. Maybe a moment or an event that really mattered. Maybe they did something. What quality did that reveal to you? What did it touch within you? I'd like to take the last 10 minutes of our time this evening together to get into small groups, preferably with people that you did not come with, and take a moment to introduce your names and then share something about the qualities of a good friend. You could share an event. You could share the qualities. You don't have to share the person's name if you don't want to. It can be just something general. Or if it's somebody who you want to say their name, that's fine. It's completely up to you. But I'd like to take a moment just to to share who has been a good friend for us and why. What has made somebody a good friend? So maybe groups of about four-ish people. So it's okay if it's three. It's okay if it's five. And just cluster up for a moment, and then we'll end together for a moment of silence. It's lovely that you have a lot to share and are disinclined to stop when the bell rings. <laughs> That's nice. It's lovely. But why don't we just end with just a minute in silence together. Perhaps experiencing some gratitude for the good friends that have guided us in this life. maybe recognizing our own potential to be good friends to others.
have a safe drive home. Hope to see you next week for the second installment in this series. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.